Hey, welcome to another edition of the From Argyle Street Podcast. This is Trevor here, looking forward to this episode on The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. With that, let's go ahead and jump into it. Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. The Grapes of Wrath is often considered John Steinbeck's greatest work, which is saying something since he's, on, he's one of only six Americans to ever win the Nobel Prize for Literature. That alone places this book in league with a handful of others collectively regarded as the best American novels ever written. For many, myself included, a high school assignment involving Of Mice and Men, Steinbeck's shorter novel, was our first introduction to him. That was the extent of my familiarity with him before diving into the Grapes of Wrath myself earlier this summer. And this novel contains a vast amount of American history I knew almost nothing about. I didn't expect to learn about the Great Depression, the Great Dust Bowl, subsequent migration to California of so many families, and what awaited all of those traveling families when they finally arrived. In this novel, Steinbeck masterfully ushers the reader into a direct experience of all of this through a single family story, The Jodes. The Grapes of Wrath relays some harsh American history and in doing so illustrates the strength that a family offers. But even more so, it encourages us to expand our understanding of who so happens to constitute family for us. All right, a recap of the story. Spoiler alerts here. One aspect of the novel that I thoroughly enjoyed was figuring out its structure because throughout, two consistent styles of chapters persist. Uh, There's the longer plot-driven chapters that move the Jode family's narrative forward, and then there's the shorter lyric chapters that are interspersed throughout. And in other novels, like Bleak House, for example, by Charles Dickens, I found that kind of similar constant shifts in point of view and tense and even style can be so confusing and disorienting, but thankfully not here. Steinbeck manages to limit his shifts between two alternating styles, and so the reader knows what to expect, and the shifts aren't so, they're not so jarring. But what's fascinating is that if you remove the lyric chapters, you'd still have the entire Jode family narrative. You'd still have that entire story. So theoretically, the book could exist without them, which I think leads to the question, why are they there? What did they contribute When it comes to the lyric chapters, I'd say they're meant primarily to set a vibe, to create a feeling, to provide a consistent tone and atmosphere from start to finish. And that's why the style of the lyric chapters is so different, because they're intended to provide a feeling, to give the reader a broader sense of the context the Jode family exists within, and to feel that choking, laboring atmosphere marked by the helpless struggle and exploitation that they experienced. Also, they reveal that the Jode family story isn't unique, which renders them a window providing a glimpse into what thousands of families endured in this migration. Crooked car dealers, the immutable iron tractor, salt of the earth truck drivers, and the generosity born from struggle. All of these uh, are what the lyric chapter contribute and add to the book in rounding out the overall atmosphere. And in doing so, 
they contribute something that the Jod narrative can't. And, and obviously the Jod family contributes something that the lyric chapters can't. They're two independent acts of communication, like two strands woven together masterfully to deliver one final stroke. And in that regard, it remains true to say that the story of the Jode family would be complete if you sliced out and removed all of the lyric chapters. You would still have the Jode story, but what you wouldn't have is the Grapes of Wrath. Now, the actual story of the Jode family, the narrative chapters. The book opens with Tom Jode on his way home, hitching a ride with a truck driver after being locked up for four years in prison. He'd killed a man with a shovel, but only after the guy stuck him with a knife first. After leaving the truck, he stumbles upon Jim Casey, the preacher, who proceeds to explain that preaching is no longer his vocation. And the old preacher seems lost and tags along with Tom for the time being. The two reach Tom's childhood home only to find it abandoned. They puzzle over the absence until an old friend, Muley Graves, approaches and provides an explanation. The land hasn't produced food. So, the sharecroppers haven't been able to pay their due. So, the bank has seized everyone's lands. Therefore, everyone has left on the promise of better work and life in California. Tom's family hasn't actually left yet, but they've gathered over at his Uncle John's place and are set to leave any day. The next morning, they reach his Uncle John's place and the family is reunited. In quick time, they decide to pack their belongings and make for California, the promised land. As they leave, the party consists of 13 people and a dog. Right? So we've got the dog, and then we've got uh, Grandpa, who just can't seem to button his pants right. We've got Grandma, who's constantly praising God for victory. Uh, Majo, the true strength of the family. Pajo is Tom's dad. Uncle John, who's a man plagued with guilt over the death of his early wife. Uh, Tom, who in a way is the main character, and in another way, he isn't. Noah is Tom's older brother, who's always been kind of odd and prone to solitude. Al uh, is Tom's younger brother, who loves trucks and women. Rosa Sharon is Tom's pregnant younger sister. Connie is Rosa Sharon's husband and the father of her child-to-be. Ruthie is the youngest girl. Winfield's the youngest boy. Those two are still just children. And then Jim Casey, the preacher, who tags along trying to find his purpose in life again. 13 of them plus a dog. That is the party all packed into one vehicle as they make way for California. And they begin the journey down Route 66. All right, so the journey from Salisaw, Oklahoma to California is anything but easy. They have less than $200 and they're traveling in an old jalopy uh, that they've transformed into a truck. And uh, in other words, making it to California is anything but a guarantee. But with courage, they begin to journey across the country, traveling the famed Highway 66. And slowly, over the course of the journey, members of the family are removed one by one. First, the dog dies. While they're filling up at a gas station, it runs out into the road, the highway, and gets hit, which is a dark foreshadowing of what's to come. Then Grandpa Joe dies. It seems he can't manage life away from his land. And so a stroke ensues and takes his life, and they bury him alongside the road. Then Grandma Joe dies. And while they're stopped by a river, Noah wanders off, never to return. Finally, they arrive in California only to find that all along, even with the losses they had faced so far, the worst was yet to come. 
Hooverville. They arrive in a Hooverville, which is uh, basically a village made out of shacks and shanties where the migrant families lived. And here they're quickly exposed to the violence and injustice of California. At the mere sight of Hooverville, Connie wanders off, also never to return. A man comes to recruit workers but refuses to commit to any certain wage. Another man from Hooverville speaks against this and is almost arrested for it, uh, but he punches the cop and runs off. Tom tries to, uh, Tom actually trips the police officer because while the man's running away, the police officer's firing bullets through the camp, trying to peg the guy. And then while the police officer's down, Jim Casey kicks him in the head, knocking him unconscious. When the police officer regains consciousness, Jim Casey pleads guilty, saying he did everything, and he's arrested and taken away. Word spreads that Hooverville is going to be burned that night, so the family repacks their belongings and sets out once more. This time, they make way to the government camp. After a narrow encounter with the rioters and the burners, they find their way to the government camp that the state has no jurisdiction over. And here, they're treated like humans with decency and respect. And life is pleasant once again, at least for a little while. Here, they enjoy toilets for the very first time, indoor plumbing with hot showers. There's these Saturday night dances that are a lot of fun in the company of other pleasant people who treat them like decent human beings. It's a great place and a great time. The only trouble is there is no work and money is running out. So once again, they're forced to leave. And they go to a place where they begin to pick peaches. So they catch word of uh, that there's work picking peaches on a particular farm and they go there. On the drive, they go past a group of people shouting and yelling right outside of this farm. And uh, they're not sure exactly what it's all about. So after they pick peaches all day, Tom wanders out at night to see what all the fuss is about. And he learns that this group formerly worked for the same farm, picking peaches as well, until wages were dropped to an unlivable amount. So they went on strike. He also finds that Jim Casey, the old preacher, has been released from jail and is essentially the leader of this group. And that night, a group of hired men come to bust up the strike. Their strategy for doing so is to kill the leader, to kill Jim Casey, which they do in this awful scene where the preacher is struck down in complete innocence, just trying to, to speak and doesn't even get a chance to say what he's trying to say. In that moment, Tom loses it and kills the man who killed Jim Casey. He escapes afterwards, but in the fight, his face gets busted up. He wakes the next morning to learn that the story's been twisted against him and that if he's found, he will be killed. More than that, they know his face is busted and are on the lookout for him. To make matters even worse with the strike busted, wages dropped again to an unlivable amount once more. The family is forced to leave again to protect Tom and to find better work that they can actually sustain themselves upon. Picking cotton. At this point, the, part of thir the party of 13 plus a dog that left Salisaw has now shrunk to just eight. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. The family finds work picking cotton, which was the work they actually did in Oklahoma. So it's something that they're familiar with, that they enjoy. They're excited to get the chance to do familiar work again. And while they're engaged in that, Tom hides out in the woods nearby while the rest of the family lives in one half of a train car. Then Tom leaves. One night, Ma brings some food and the two of them talk and it's decided that it's best for everyone if he leaves. 
in a difficult conversation, the two say goodbye to each other. And Tom disappears from the narrative, never to reappear again. Then the rain comes, and Rosa Sharon goes into labor. A downpour arrives, creating a flood. The men try to build a mud wall that keeps the water away from the boxcars while she delivers the baby. The baby is born, but isn't alive. The men succeed in building the wall, only to have a tree come crashing down upon it. With the mud wall destroyed, the water continues to rise, even up into the boxcar. The family decides to leave, seeking better shelter elsewhere. Here, Al parts from the family as well. Another family is staying in the other half of the boxcar, and he proposes to a young woman in that family. So when the Jodes leave, Al stays to be with his fiancée. And with that, the number drops to six. The final barn scene. The remaining Jodes set out to find better shelter, and they locate a barn. Inside, they find a father and son sheltering from the rain as well. The son is in decent health, but the father is dying. He's given all of their food to the boy and is on the brink of starvation. Ma Jode and Rosa Sharon lock eyes for a moment and agree on a plan to save this man's life. The whole family shuffles away to give privacy while Rosa Sharon proceeds to breastfeed the man, this complete and utter stranger, with her milk that's just come in uh, after the delivery of her baby. The man latches on, she smiles, and with that, the novel closes. An interpretation, a broader family. All right, so the first time that I finished this novel, I was thoroughly confused. First, Tom inexplicably falls out of the narrative, never to return. And then the final scene involves a woman breastfeeding a man she'd never even met. What do you do with that? Thankfully, a second read is always super helpful. And what I found was that The Grapes of Wrath is a plea to understand all of humanity within the category of family. The Grapes of Wrath is a plea to understand all of humanity within the category of family. And there's really three steps to this interpretation. So the first step, step one, is this, the main character. One of the keys to interpreting The Grapes of Wrath is figuring out who the main character is. The novel opens in such a way that we assume Tom is, but then he falls out of the narrative in such a confusing fashion. I think this was intentional on Steinbeck's part. Uh, a way of securing our assumptions early only to rip the rug out from under us in the closing section of the book. Psychologically, it's similar to Hitchcock's classic film Psycho, where we're introduced to the main character only to have her murdered partway through the story. Then we're left frantically searching for some other vantage point, only to find in the end we've moved into the mind of a psycho. Right? That's why that movie's so creepy. Except in The Grapes of Wrath, Tom's removal isn't used to convey something else. In short, Tom falling out of the narrative is meant to reveal that he's not the main character. The family is. This is one of those end of story twists that leads you to reconsider the entire narrative differently. It causes us to see how the essence of the story is the slow disintegration of this one particular family. For example, with the loss of their property, their land in Oklahoma, the family suffers a devastating blow. They're forced to leave, and in leaving the land, they lose Grandpa Joe as well, as we soon find that he cannot survive apart from the land that made him who he is. So once removed, he quickly fades and dies. Without Grandpa, Grandma Joe dies also. Then Noah wanders off, not wanting to be a burden. 
When the family was stable, he had a place within it. But when they enter such duress, he concludes that he isn't able to contribute in the same fashion as Al and Tom, at least not in any meaningful way. So he chooses to leave in order to remove himself as a burden. He's trying to help the family, but when the family is understood to be the protagonist, the real hero, the main character of the story, then Noah's loss is clearly anything but a gain. Then Connie leaves. The pressure is too much for him to bear, uh, so he, he walks off, never to return. Jim Casey is arrested and then killed. Tom is forced to leave because his presence is endangering the family. Rosa Sharon's baby is stillborn. And finally, Al leaves, staying with his fiance while the remaining family members move on. Each one of these losses is a blow that renders the real hero of the story weaker. The family. And this narrative of slow disintegration demonstrates that the one who really suffered throughout this historical oppression was families. Families bore the burden and were torn apart by it. But when that comes to the novel's meaning, when it comes to the, when it comes to the meaning of the novel, that's only the first step. Step two is the strength drawn. Right, step two, what the novel also demonstrates is the strength drawn by individuals in the face of such, such suffering and the role the family structure played in cultivating such ability to sacrifice and contribute in these ways. For example, the opening and closing lyric chapters both portray women and children looking to the family's uh, man to see if the latest blow had broken him. Uh, this is a quote from the opening lyric chapter. The women studied the men's faces secretly, for the corn could go as long as something else remained. After a while, the faces of the watching men lost their bemused perplexity and became hard and angry and resistant. Then the women knew that they were safe and that there was no break. Then they asked, what'll we do? And the men replied, I don't know, but it was all right. The women knew it was all right, and the watching children knew it was all right. Women and children knew deep in themselves that no misfortune was too great to bear if their men were whole. Then the closing lyric chapter mirrors this, saying essentially the exact same thing. This is the closing lyric chapter. The women watched the men, watched to see whether the break had come at last. The women stood silently and watched, and where a number of men gathered together, the fear went from their faces, and anger took its place. And the women sighed with relief, for they knew it was all right. The break had not come, and the break would never come as long as fear could turn to wrath. The men were able to draw such strength, even in the face of such awful circumstances, in the beginning because of the Dust Bowl, in the latter chapter, in the end chapter, uh, because of what they were experiencing in California, because they had to. Right? They were able to draw such strength, even in the face of such awful circumstances, because they had to. They had no other option. They needed to for the sake of their families. That same theme is played out over and over again within the Jode family itself. For example, Al Jode is practically a kid prior to their migration, just a teenager wavering on the edge of adulthood. But the move forces him to step up and oversee the selection and care of their old jalopy truck, which he does well from beginning to end. Tom gains the strength not to fight back against the rioters outside of Hooverville in order to protect his family. It goes against his own internal values, but the comfort and encouragement of his mother, uh, by that, he's able to sacrifice his own sense of dignity to protect the rest of the family. Ma lays in the back of the truck beside her dead mother, not saying a word about it because they needed to get past the state line. 
Ma's role overall, uh, even beyond that one specific example, is an interesting study. This is a character sketch that we're introduced to her with that also matches what the lyric chapters are getting at. This is what it says about her. Her eyes seem to, uh, her eyes seem to have experienced all possible tragedy and to have mounted pain and suffering like steps into a high calm and a superhuman understanding. She seemed to know, to accept, to welcome her position, the citadel of the family, the strong place that could not be taken. And since old Tom and the children could not know hurt or fear unless she acknowledged them, she had practiced denying them in herself. And since when a joyful thing happened, they looked to see whether joy was on her, it was her habit to build up laughter out of inadequate material. She seemed to know that if she swayed, the family shook. And if she ever really deeply wavered or despaired, the family would fall. The family will to function would be gone. Steinbeck has created a juxtaposition here between the families of the Lyric chapters and the Joad family. The Lyric chapters give credit to the father and husband for this stabilizing role, but this section clearly pays the honor to Ma Joad. Perhaps that's Steinbeck's way of acknowledging that not every family needs to operate in exactly the same manner, but to say that the family structure in general does both offer and draw out the strength from each of its members. Finally, at the book's open, Jim Casey is lost without meaning or direction in life. Then the Jodes adopt him, and as part of a family, he finally learns love and to sacrifice for others, which he does by covering for Tom, letting himself be arrested in Hooverville. Connie and Uncle John represent the outliers. Connie has the diff- that. Connie, he has the family attachments, but instead of drawing out strength from within him, they end up being too much for him to bear. And so instead of rising to face the difficulties, he's overcome by them. Uncle John lost his wife and unborn child tragically decades earlier uh, and was never able to overcome it. In some ways, he is forever broken because with the loss of his family, he lost the ability to contribute. His grief and the guilt continues to plague him through the entire story. All that to say, the second step in interpreting the novel is the recognition that relationships, and in particular family attachments, give us the ability to draw strength from within that we are unable to access alone. We see it with Al, we see it with Tom, we see it especially with Ma Jode, we see it in the lyric chapters, and we see it with Jim Casey as well, right? That they all draw strength from within that they are unable to access alone, and they do so through these particular family attachments that they have. That's step two in the argument. Now, the third and final step, the broader family. This part centers around the famed and confusing ending to this celebrated novel, Rosa Sharon breastfeeding a complete stranger in a barn. To make sense of this, we have to follow her story from the beginning. When we meet her, Rosa Sharon is excited to form her own family. She's married to Connie and expecting her first child. Then over the course of the novel, her dreams fall apart. Connie leaves, her baby is stillborn, and the family that she desired and was on the brink of possessing is now no more. This disintegration leaves her uh, at a loss in terms of direction and purpose in her life. Then, at the very close of the book, they meet the father and son who are in desperate need. And she's able to offer breast milk, nourishment from her very own body to save this man's life. And as she does so, a smile spreads across her face. In this scene, Rosa Sharon smiles because she embraces the idea the novel is attempting to communicate. 
that we don't need to belong to a particular family in order to draw strength from it because all of humanity is our family. We don't need to belong to a particular family in order to draw strength from it because all of humanity is our family. So anytime someone is suffering, we can sacrifice and step up to contribute there because they too are family, part of the broader family of humanity to which we all belong. That is the main message of the novel. We see it with Rosa Sharon's initially confusing ending. We see it with Jim Casey learning to sacrifice for the Joads, but then extending that ability to the rest of humanity. That's what he's doing outside of the peach farm. And we see it in the failure of the Californians to embrace the idea, rendering these families as less than human in order to justify treating them as such. And finally, we see it even in Tom's last words to his mother as he encourages her to see him in the lives of so many others. This is, I want to read this quote for us just because it's it's pretty powerful what he says and resonates with this particular theme. He says, uh, well, they sat silent in the coal black cave of vines. Ma said, how am I going to know about you? They might kill you and I wouldn't know. They might hurt you. How am I going to know? Tom laughed uneasily. Well, maybe like Casey says, a fella ain't got a soul of his own, but only a big piece of a big one. And then, then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. Then I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you look, wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. If Casey knowed why, I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad and I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when our folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses they build, why, I'll be there. See, God, I'm talking like Casey, comes to thinking about him so much. Seems like I can see him sometimes. Steinbeck's message is that if only we would embrace one another, all of humanity as well, uh, if, if only we would embrace one another, all of humanity as family, then the occurrences like what the Grapes of Wrath records would not happen ever again. And that is why the Grapes of Wrath is a plea to understand all of humanity within the category of family. Because if only we would do so, then such awful, uh, difficult, oppressive historical experiences would not happen anymore. Closing thoughts. My own interaction with the book, The Strength of a Family. I've seen the principle at play in my own life that having familial attachments cultivates a willingness to sacrifice and can draw the best out of you. For that reason, I agree that marriage and family structures often grow us as individuals and imbue us with a strength greater than what we had before. Now, that's not to say that every person needs marriage and children uh, to learn how to love others well, but at least in my case personally, it's definitely helped. If that's a commitment you're considering, Pride and Prejudice offers some wisdom that I'd highly recommend. You can click the link to that article here. However, with The Grapes of Wrath, because the meaning of the novel extends beyond these structures, I think it follows that my own wrestling with it should as well. The pattern throughout the book is that the haves feel threatened by the have-nots. This sparks fear initially, but that quickly rises into anger and then matures into fully formed hatred. That emotional path is what leads, at least in this novel, to one group of people hating, abusing, and oppressing another. Now, clearly, nobody wants to be marked by that kind of behavior, by that kind of fear, anger, and especially hatred. So the question to consider is, 
How do we avoid that? Perhaps what's most helpful to recognize is that the novel's unfolding leads us to identify with the migrant people, with the Jodes, and to sympathize with their plight. But in our own lives, we could just as easily slip into the role of the Californians. Not that you ever will or have, but retaining that understanding that the potential lies within us fosters a helpful self-awareness. The best deterrent may be maintaining the belief in every person's inherent worth and dignity, not just as a belief that we subscribe to, but as a conviction lived out in our interactions with others always, right? Part of the grounding of that belief coming from a biblical perspective being that every person's created in the image of God. And so they are a person, a being of inherent worth and dignity. And I think when it comes to considering this question, the best deterrent is really holding to that, not just as a belief that we subscribe to, but as a conviction that we live out in our interactions with others always. All that to say, it may not be families migrating across the country, shacking up in Hoovervilles outside your door that puts you ill at ease. It may just be a coworker who's a jerk or the neighbor whose lawn is unkempt and who lights fireworks off at 11.30 p.m. on a Tuesday or the person who is so politically other than you that you've already reduced them to a straw man and have failed to consider the other aspects of their life that manifest their humanity. In the wake of all kinds of unpleasant interactions, it's easy to take a frustrating person, strip their humanity away uh, in, in order to deal with them, even if only as a mental exercise. But the work of maintaining an understanding of their dignity is significant and of retaining an understanding of their humanity. Because in discarding their humanity, as the novel illustrates, we begin also to displace our own. Thanks for listening. This has been the John Steinbeck episode of the From Argyle Street podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found it beneficial. All right. I'll, until next time, enjoy your reading.